0: So let's prepare ourselves for this long evening and pray that God will really bless us. Father, uh, thank you for your word to us. You knew exactly what you were doing when you gave us this word. You knew exactly what we needed to hear. And now we pray that you will come and meet with us and give us humble, teachable hearts for your great glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you can remember back to the summer when we studied in Revelation 2 and 3, we studied the seven letters to the seven churches, there was a phrase repeated at the end of each of those letters, to him who overcomes, to him who who overcomes. Overcoming, in many ways, is one of the themes of the book. God rules, uh, Jesus wins, keep going, don't compromise. Or we might say, overcome in Jesus. Overcome the world in Jesus. And to every generation, Jesus calls out, overcome, be overcomers, keep going, don't compromise. You don't need to compromise, and you shouldn't compromise. Keep going. That's 1st century Asia Minor, where this letter was originally sent to, and 21st century County Armagh. Of course, we have uh, two problems that we face in every generation. The world is like an alluring prostitute seeking to seduce us away from God. Really dealt with that uh, many times in the, in the book, particularly last week in chapter 17. The other attack that we face of course is that the world is a tough place seeking to intimidate us to give up our faith and so it's a kind of card and stick card and stick the card to attract us from Jesus the stick to beat us from Jesus and we know there's so many other options out there in the world many of them are so attractive to us they're designed to be attractive to us and the temptation is that we give up We compromise. We go with the world. So this whole book, this whole letter was written to those who would be tempted to flirt with the dragon and the two beasts, the world and the sinful system. And John longs to inform them and see them transformed by God's grace and he would love the same to happen to us this evening. This is the last section of the book. We mentioned that last week, chapter 17 right through to the end. It's dominated by two women, um, two masters and two cities. We'll see that as we go through. Last week, the emphasis was on the prostitute who would allure us away from Jesus. This week, it's a similar idea, but John uses the idea of the city, or in this case, the city of Babylon. And Babylon's basically doing exactly the same thing as the prostitute is seeking to do allure us or seduce us away from Jesus. So the the message, I suppose, of chapter 18 is leave Babylon and find Jerusalem leave the world and enjoy the kingdom leave the fleeting pleasures of now and find lasting joy in glory you can't have both says jesus but like this morning isn't it there are two treasures but you have got to choose wisely there are two visions but we have got to choose wisely there are two masters we have got to choose wisely so what do we have tonight well three points i think Judgment in verses 1 to 8, reactions, 9 to 19, and then meaning, 20 to 24. Let's um, think of judgment, first of all, in these first eight verses. Chapter 18 summons us to understand exactly what we're up against in this evil world. And the summons is to get out of this evil system and stay out, stay out of this evil system. And the image, of course, used is the one of Babylon. Babylon. Now it's not a literary, literal city, it's not a physical city, it was once a physical city, as we read about in Jeremiah, but Babylon basically is every city, every town, every place that stands in rebellion against our God. And therefore we might say that, that Babylon is anti-church, it, it opposes Christ's pure, perfect bride, it opposes the image of um, Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem. So Babylon is corrupt society. Babylon is fallen culture. Babylon is decadent civilization. It's a composite picture of the world and the worldliness of the world. Corruption, immorality, that kind of thing. And therefore, Babylon is the United Kingdom. We're living in Babylon. Babylon is London, it's Belfast, it's Armagh, it's Rich Hill. It's wherever you are. It's worldliness. Babylon is wherever worldliness in a culture looks attractive, where sin looks attractive. That's Babylon. Kevin DeYoung uh, very helpfully puts it like this. Worldliness makes wickedness look normal and makes righteousness look strange. It just turns everything on its head. And God says, get out of Babylon and stay out of Babylon. Now, the good news, of course, is that it's under judgment already. And we're told what's going to happen. Verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's start where where it begins. Verse 1. In the first verse, we're told here uh, that truth shatters deceit. Where truth illuminates us and tells us what really is going on. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by His splendor. With great authority, the angel illuminated the truth. And John could see the reality. It's it's lovely when the morning sermon and the evening sermon uh, match, doesn't it? This morning we talked about having eyes that can see. So we have light sight, not dark sight. And here we have this light sight. John could see the reality. He saw Babylon as it really is. Filthy and confusing. So on one hand, we have clear, clean truth. On the other hand, we have filth and lies. Babylon and the truth of the gospel. Now, illumination shows us the way and as uh, scriptures tell us, illumination indwells our heart, helps us to see things as they really are. And how are they? Well, verse 2 and 3 tells us, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. A haunt... For every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So she's a city of evil. Abandoned and fallen. Finished. She's done. Babylon is fallen. This is what's going to happen sometime in the future. One writer um, puts it like this, she's like an an old building, condemned but still standing. You know that idea where a a building is uh, just no longer inhabited, no longer able to take life, but is not yet knocked down? Well, it's a bit like that. It's a matter of time. Um, Babylon, the world, is on borrowed time. And if you want some homework for this, and by the way, we've often said this, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you'll not understand the book of Revelation. Um, Isaiah 47 and Jeremiah 15, 51 are useful chapters to read if you really want to make sense of this particular chapter. And verse 2, it really is no exaggeration. Demonic forces are all around us. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. The world is a house for demons, a haunt for every evil spirit, disguised, of course, as angels of light, disguised as sheep, but in reality wolves. So that's why the, the world is attractive, but is deadly. But sadly, we are, are often, often, not always, but often, so worldly in the way we look at the world. We're worldly in the way we look at work. We're worldly in the way we look at politics. We're worldly in the way we look at entertainment. But I think what Revelation does is that it pulls back the covers and we see the world for what it is. It's a place of demonic influence. That's what it is. And we have to see it like that. One of the things that I find most encouraging about the study of Revelation has changed my whole worldview. It changes the way I look at politics, it changes the way I look at the news. Because the world is a place under demonic influence, seducing us away from the bridegroom, alluring us away from ultimate blessing. And in verse 3, we have an example of what what worldliness does. It enslaves the nations. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth have committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. We, We might say the nations are drunk, with worldliness. And that's what's going on. It's the only thing that makes sense of the news. And notice especially that the wealthy and influential are especially targeted. Kings and merchants mentioned there. The movers and shakers of our society. Because they have influence. So nations are seduced and snared. There's little or no resistance from the, from the world to worldliness. There seems to be no objection. Rarely people can say, hey, stop this. This This is ridiculous. This is wrong. This is sinful. How often do we hear that? No. Sadly, pathetically, predictably, there's passive agreement. We simply just go with it. The world goes with worldliness. That's why things are getting worse. But we don't need to be part of it. We don't need to be part of it. Verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Now, often we, we just can't simply take every little uh, word or phrase or we'll be here until midnight. So we've got, to, we've got to move through this, but we've got to get the flavor, particularly of this verse. It's very important. Come out says, John, come out. Come out of the thought systems of the world. Come out of the standards of the world. We have to be in the world. Of course we do. We have to live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And that's why we read from Jeremiah 29 verse 7. We're to get out of Babylon. We're to come out of Babylon in the sense of coming out of the ideology or the thought forms or the standards of Babylon or the world. But what did God tell us people to do while they lived in Babylon? To pray for Babylon. Seek the peace of Babylon and seek the prosperity of Babylon. And that's exactly what we are supposed to do. We're supposed to get out of Babylon as an influence over us, but we are to get into Babylon and be an influence to her. To it. Because we have a different mindset. We, have a, we march to the beat of, of a different drum, and we have a beautiful stream of blessing to give. So we are to not be of Babylon, but we are to witness in Babylon. We bit about that as we conclude an application at the end. But um, there's no escape, verse 5. No escape for Babylon. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. You know, for us, the saved, if you're saved tonight, let me tell you, God remembers your sins no more. Do you, you know that, don't you? If you're saved, God remembers your sins no more because, as Callum rightly pointed out in our opening prayer, Christ has paid the price of our sins on the cross as he died. And, and then later on, three days later, he rose again to prove that the payment was received. For us, the saved, God remembers our sins no more, but for the world, the unsaved, God does remember their sins, every single one of them. And notice what verse 5 says, For her sins are piled up to heaven. For God has remembered her crimes. Piled up like a tar. It seems to be here perhaps an analogy of the tar the of Babel. We don't know, but that's a thought. God will not be mocked. So if you're unsaved tonight, let me tell you, you cannot get away. There is no escape for you. You may think your loyalty to a church or your coming to, to religion is, is, is going to save you. It will not save you. It cannot save you. Until Christ saves you, you will remain unsaved and you will not escape. In verses 6 and 7, Babylon, the world will be repaid exactly exactly as she has dealt out to others, uh, repaid exactly as she has given to particularly to the church. And the word double there, let's really, give back to her as she has given, pay her back double for what she has done, mix her a double portion from her own cup. Double in the sense means an exact match. You know, he keeps a record, he gives a just reward, so as we have received, so she Babylon will receive back. And then he says, don't, don't be intimidated. Verse 7, at the end of verse 7. know, All the glory, all the luxury, she gave herself. Verse 7. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. See, boasting is the um, language of Babylon, isn't it? They're so cocky, so sure of themselves. Arrogance is the way of the world, isn't it? But in the end, God says, hey, death, mourning, and famine will take the world and all the pride, and all the wealth, and all the influence, and all the arrogance, all the stuff of the world will be consumed by fire. That's what God says. So John is saying here to these people who are under immense pressure, pressure we can't even begin to imagine, you can overcome, and you should overcome. 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 And we should never think for one moment of leaving Jesus, or turning our back on Jesus for that stuff, for the world. It's crazy. It's so crazy, actually. It's easy. So that's the, um, the judgment. What about the reactions? Well, we've got two reactions. Sinners mourn. That's the majority of the next section, verse nine, right through to nineteen, and then the saved celebrate, verse twenty. Again, John uses the Old Testament pictures: Jeremiah fifty-one, or maybe ancient Ezekiel twenty-six, twenty-seven. Again, if you want to take notes and read up about that later on, you can. The angel reports the reactions of three groups affected by Babylon's destruction, um, and all three reactions are kind of are, 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 are a, um, kind of a similar follow a similar line. They stand and watch from a distance. They're very upset about what's happening, but it tends to be that they're upset for selfish reasons. And then there's a loud lament. For instance, verse 10 gives you an example. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, whoa, whoa, oh great city, oh Babylon's city of power, in one hour your doom has has come. Well, again, we'll look at that. I like to go through verse by verse, as you know, so again, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Verse 9, again, we, what we see here is what the worldliness of the world does to us. It's like an alluring prostitute that causes to commit adultery. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Now, again, we've got to remember, we're supposed to be the bride. He is Our groom. So, worldliness is adultery and idolatry. And it is repulsive when we give ourselves to anyone or anything other than Jesus. Note again the reference to, and shared her luxury there in verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, as we thought about this morning, possession of wealth is not the problem. I say again, the possession of wealth is not the problem. It's the selfish use of luxuries of the world that is sinful. And it is the proud use of luxuries that is sinful. So the Bible calls us to be very careful with wealth because it can lead us to spiritual adultery. Verse 10. Look at this verse 10. We could spend a whole evening in this one verse. Terrified at their torment, they stand far off and cry, woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. What do we see here? Terror, terrified, terrified at their torment. No more sensual, no more immoral favors from the world. Gone. Helpless, standing far off. Nothing anyone can do. The world can't save itself and Satan can't and won't save the world. Clueless. Even at this point. Oh great city of Babylon. City of power. What? You're a fool. Even at the end they think. They really think. This is. We are the great ones. We are the mighty ones. No they're not. They're fools. And the end is certain. And the shock. In one hour your doom has come. In other words. One hour stands for being quick. Instant. Complete. Didn't Jesus warn us, when you least expect it, judgment will come? And the merchants, um, sorry, there's the Kings verse 9 and 10. The merchants, 11 to 17, uh, they're, they're motivated by selfish greed. You'll notice there, you need to read that for yourselves. And No one would be able to buy their goods and make their money uh, anymore. You can see that verse 11. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. And in verse 12 and 13, we have an impressive list of luxury items that these merchants would have given to people and given to the world and passed around. It's an impressive trading list. And I was just thinking about this this week when we we're, we're, were promising you with Brexit. We're going to have trade deals with the whole world, you know, and all these goods will come in, and we'll be able to send our goods all over the world. And yet the merchants are absolutely distressed because the market is gone. Because Babylon's gone. Now you might be slightly tempted to have some sympathy for Babylon. All they're trying to do is surely trade. Isn't that what we do day and daily? Well, notice at the end of verse 13. And the bodies and souls of men. This isn't a matter of innocent traders trying to have ethical trading. (laughs) No. Basically, this is slave trading. This is the abuse of people. The abuse of power regarding human beings as commodities. And we have seen, have we not, the sadness of that in recent days. Now, there's a similar reaction um, to the kings in verse 9 and 10. We have um, the merchants, verse 15, terror, weeping, mourning. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, woe, woe. O great city, dressed in fine linen purple and scarlet and glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. And verse 17, um, in a flash, everything is brought to ruin. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. And in verse 17 to 19, there's a last little section. We have sea captains and sailors. Uh, Again, there's reasons for these ones being um, picked, but I haven't time to go into that, but I can assure you there's a good reason why John would have mentioned these. Devastated at the loss of Babylon. That's what's happening here. They they lose their livelihoods. They lose their ability to make money. um, And the same language and the same emotions of weeping and mourning are here. 19, for instance. Whoa, 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 great city, where all who had ships of of the sea became rich through, through her wealth in one hour. She's been brought to ruin. So three groups, all trapped by the world, so dependent, so involved, so sucked in, so hooked into the system. And they are absolutely shattered by it. Here's how one writer put it. None of these responses have praised God for his justice. None have marveled at God's power to destroy Babylon. None have expressed repentance. None truly loved Babylon, for none moved to help her. All stood far off, and though they lamented Babylon, they were clearly more concerned about what Babylon's fall meant for their own selfish interests. That's what's going to happen. The sinners will mourn on that day. But the saved rejoice, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. So, Babylon, attractive and yet destructive. And the warning is, don't go down with her. But instead, the saved of the world, God's people, celebrate the end of worldliness. Celebrate the end of the world's influence. Now, this verse should be seen as the angel calling and commanding God's people to rejoice. It's not part of the captain's and seaman's statement. I think that's a mistake in the modern translations. So, what we have here in verse 20 is a song of victory, a song of joy as we see God's judgment over evil. The poor exploited? No more. God's people persecuted? No more. God's standard ignored? No more. God's gospel scorned, no more. The day's coming. And when that day comes, we will stand up, every single one of us, and we will rejoice because God's judgment has come. God has ended the day of evil. And when the world and its influence ends, the afflictors will be afflicted. And on that day, the sinful will mourn. But not out of repentance. Out of selfishness. And the saved will celebrate. That's going to be Sunday. But what about the meaning? Oops, I forgot that. But what about the meaning of the third and final point? Verse 21 to 24. The third angel makes an appearance. Again, notice the angel doesn't just use words, but he uses actions kind of lived worked out parable here a similar picture again to jeremiah 51 59 to 64 if you're familiar with jeremiah 51 you'll know there is a story about the man of god he takes a scroll reads out words of judgment and then he ties a stone onto the scroll and throws the scroll into the river euphrates and that's a sign of course that babylon would fall never to recover that's the idea The angel here goes further. It's not a pebble he takes. He takes a boulder the size of a millstone and he hurls it not into the river but into the sea. Babylon destroyed. Let's read verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Never to be found again. This is the end. Babylon is gone forever. And then we have a list of the evidence of what this will look like. A kind of a systematic unraveling of the world. Do you you notice that? That's why all these things like music silence, tools unused, food production ceases. That's verse 22. Shall we read it? I think we have time, yes. The music of the harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. And in verse 23, every light extinguished, loving relationships ended. The leading of the world astray will never happen again. Let's read verse 23. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants will never Where the world's great men, by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. That's never going to happen again. It's gone. It's ended. Babylon has fallen. It's all over. In one hour. In a blink. In a moment. All over and out. And verse 24 reports the greatest condemnation on Babylon. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. This is the thing that hurts God the most, you see, when his people are abused and persecuted and martyred by the world. Why? Because they're blood-bought children of the living God. And those who hurt us and those who persecute us will not get away with it. can. I watch the news. I watch the way our politicians have spoken about abortion and same-sex marriage recently. And I say, I, I, sometimes I even say to the television screen, though nobody hears me except myself, you're not going to get away with this. You're not going to get away with this. He will settle the accounts for sure, for sure. So as we come to a conclusion, just a few things here. That's of a reminder. Who or what is Babylon? Just in case you've forgotten. <laughs> and it's easy. I know it's difficult. This imagery is difficult at times for us to keep everything going on in our heads. Who or what is Babylon? As a godless and evil city, Babylon is a mockery of God's beautiful city, the New Jerusalem which we're going to hear about in a few weeks' time. And as a godless and evil prostitute, she is a mockery of God's beautiful bride, the Church of Jesus Christ. And the church in the first century needed to hear the good news in the face of worldly attack and deception and seduction. And so do we. Probably. Although I think we're a bit selfish in the way we look at history. I I, I sometimes wonder, is this the closest to first century living than any century between the first and now? I, I have a feeling it is, but maybe that's just because we have only eyes for ourselves. It's a different century, the same issues. Let's conclude. James Hamilton I, I find particularly helpful in, in helping with um, application. Remember, two women, prostitute and the bride, two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem, two masters, the beast and the beast and the dragon and the Lamb of God, Jesus Himself. Here's the question I want to. Oh, I got excited there. Let me see. Here's the first question I want to ask as we leave tonight. Who or what are we part of? Because I think we want to. I think we want to think that we're part of the Bride of Christ, the Church, and not the prostitute. You're probably sitting there, horrified at the thought. Me, a part of the prostitute? Me, with the prostitute? I think we want to think that uh, we're part of the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Not Babylon, the world, with all that evil and sinful activity. That's ridiculous. Or we like to think that we're part of the family of the Lamb of God, Jesus. Not the dragon and the two beasts. But here's the question. Are you? Are you? Who are you with? What are you with? Are you in Babylon? Are you in the New Jerusalem? Are you in the world? Are you in in Christ? Because, listen, we're more infected by the world than we might think. Didn't we see that this morning? With earthly treasure and heavenly treasure? With dark sight and light sight, with... God and mammon, or God and, and, and money. The days of the prostitute, the days of Babylon, the days of dragon are numbered. But who are we with? Really? The second thing is, will we lament or rejoice at the end of worldliness? Are we going to be like the kings and the merchants and the sea captains and we lament, oh, the end of the world, the end of worldliness? Or are we going to be like the saints and the apostles and the prophets in verse 20 who rejoice? Let me just ask this in a, a few, um, I suppose, hopefully pertinent questions. Will we lament the end of worldliness? Here's a question for you men. Will you lament the end of the pornography industry. I'll give you a second or two. To think about that. Will we lament. The end of the exploitation of the poor. And the vulnerable. The abuse of children. Slavery. Will we lament the end of the misuse of political power? Will we lament the end of pleasure-seeking entertainment? Or will we rejoice and say, Praise God, eventually justice has come. Purity has come. Truth has come. The gospel has come. Will we lament or rejoice at the end of worldliness? Here's how one writer put it. Do you enjoy the world, or do you enjoy God? Or are we trying to play a wee bit of both? I find this, this next um, sentence particularly challenging for somebody who loves his football and who often gets frustrated by it. Here's how he writes. Do you long to be with God, or would you rather... Go to a nice restaurant, the mall, or maybe a football game and enjoy yourself. Do you live for what you were made to live for? Him? Or do you live for what you were not made to live for and can never really satisfy you, which is yourself? this chapter tells us leave the city to find the city. Leave Babylon and find Jerusalem. Leave the pleasures of the world to find real joy in Jesus. And here's the last thing. Have we genuine compassion for those who are lost in worldliness? There are lots of people we know and love who are lost in Babylon. And we need to have compassion Our village is Babylon. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands, lost in Rich Hill. We need to be a people who will pray, and we need to be a people who will evangelize. Do we really, genuinely, have compassion for the lost in our community? We need servants. We need facilities. We need prayer. We need to get to the people who are lost. The great thing is, God will save. Today is the day of salvation, and God will keep. I'm already thinking about next Sunday evening, because I'm getting three in a row. I don't know how that how I managed to get that, but we're going to chapter 19 next week. Let, let me end by the first verse. After this, I heard what sounded like the, the roar of a great multitude in heaven, heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The best is yet to come for us, God's people. Let's remember, why would we ever want to be part of Babylon? Because Babylon has fallen. We can be part of the marriage feast of the Lamb, the New Jerusalem, the kingdom of the Lamb of God. May we enjoy that in these difficult and hard days. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace to us. These are difficult verses, but you have lifted our hearts as we have tried to understand. Continue with us, and may you bless us in these days that lie ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.